Would you stand with me this morning as we read from God's Word? And open your Bibles to the book of Daniel. As Pastor Bruce begins a series uh, entitled Thriving in Babylon. We're going to read this morning Daniel 1, verses 1 through 2. And if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, you can find it on page 501. Again, we're going to read Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 this morning. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Let's pray. God, we ask this morning as Pastor Bruce begins this series, Lord, that, um, Lord, you would just show us that... uh, When times of life are tough, God, when our circumstances seem to overwhelm us, Lord, you are a big God, and you have called us to uh, place our trust in you, even in those times. God, just change and mold our hearts this morning, draw us ever closer to you, and uh, help us to become more like uh, your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Well, as Kirk said already, we are beginning a brand new worship series this morning on Daniel that we're calling Thriving in Babylon. And in this series, we're focusing specifically on the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. And our goal is pretty simple. It's to discover how to thrive in Babylon from the lives of Daniel and his three friends who were exiled in Babylon. Now, as we get ready for this series, let's uh, Let's kind of try to get a handle on the historical context uh, here in our minds. Daniel lived approximately 400 years before, before King David, and, or after King David, I should say, 400 years before King David, 600 years before Jesus. And the book of Daniel covers the time period from about 605 B.C. to about 530 B.C. And in the beginning of the book, Daniel's just a teenager. He's probably around 15 to 16, 17 years of age. And when the book closes, Daniel is an old man of about 90 years of age. And during his life, God allowed Daniel to outlast three kings, receive six promotions, and become a trusted prime minister to some of the most powerful rulers in world history. Now, Daniel is one of the most famous characters in all the Old Testament. And yet... He's still relatively unknown. Many of us, perhaps here, we we know a a few stories about Daniel, but few of us really know the the main point of those stories that we're familiar with. For some of us, the name Daniel brings to mind a a fiery furnace and a, a scary night in the lion's den. And yet the miracles of surviving these fiery furnace and this scary night in the lion's den don't make up really the main point of the book of Daniel that bears his name. Oh, don't get me wrong. They're an important part of Daniel's life, but they don't make up the most important part. They're not the main emphasis of the story or the book of Daniel. 
And you say, why is that? Well, let me show you two reasons why. Number one, first of all, I invite you to pull out your insert in your bulletins if you want to take notes or you just follow along on the screen behind me here. But Daniel and his three friends are exceptions when it comes to surviving fiery furnaces and hungry lions. They are exceptions. When reading about Daniel and his three friends, it's, it's easy to think that God will deliver me from danger in persecution, if I just have enough faith and if I do the right thing, listen, then fire won't harm me and hungry lions won't eat me. But if that's the main point, then Daniel and God have some serious explaining to do. Because when it comes to surviving fiery furnaces and, and hungry lions, Daniel and his three friends are the exceptions, not the rule. No matter how godly we become, the odds of surviving the martyr's fire and the lion's appetites are rather bleak. In fact, as far as I know, Daniel and his three friends are the only ones who ever walked out unscathed. Everyone else perished, dying a horrible and agonizing death. And that's why it's a, a huge mistake for us to focus on kind of these stories that's just an adventure story instead of going underneath and learning. What is the main point? What is Daniel trying to tell us here? What does God want us to learn through these stories here in the book of Daniel? It not only obscures the main point if we don't have this proper perspective, but it sends a false message. And that is, if we live for God and do the right thing, then God won't let anything bad happen to us. And that's certainly not true. That God somehow will just rescue us from the furnace and the lines. And that's not always true, is it? In fact, nothing could be further from the truth because God's best have often suffered the worst that this world has to offer. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, evil and injustice have ruled the day. Bad things do happen to good people. In fact, it happens quite frequently. And if to drive this point home, the first story after the fall of Adam and Eve is none other than in Genesis chapter 4, a very wicked brother who's killing his godly sibling in a dispute over how best to worship God. And that's just on page 4 of the Bible. And the rest of the Bible is filled with similar stories. In fact, you go to the book of Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews there deals with this issue straight on. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug. He doesn't dance around it. He goes right after it. Because after reviewing in Hebrews chapter 11, this long list of men and women who walked by faith and experienced great success and incredible victories, he switches gears there in Hebrews 11, and he turns our attention to another group of heroes where that did not happen. In fact, listen to what the writer says in verses 36 through 38. He says, Some of these many people faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskins and destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These, the writer of Hebrews says, these were also men and women of great faith, though. And yet, God, in His sovereign wisdom, 
declined to rescue them from their earthly trials and persecutions. Not because they were spiritual losers. Oh, no. But because God had another plan for them. God chose to be with them in their trials rather than delivering them from their trials. Now, this doesn't mean that God won't deliver us or that God somehow can't deliver us if he chooses to. Listen, he will and he can, but more often than not, our deliverance won't take place in this world, it will take place in the next world. And so understand, from the outset of our study here, that the stories we're going to look at, in the most familiar one is the chapter 3, the fiery furnace, and then chapter 6, the lion's den, that's what most of us are familiar with, but understand that Daniel and his three friends are exceptions when it comes to surviving fiery furnaces and hungry lions. So why then? Why take time to read through the book of Daniel? Why take time to do a worship series on his life? What should we learn from this? Well, here's why. Notice this in your notes. Daniel and his three friends are examples when it comes to thriving in Babylon. They're examples. They're incredible example of how to live and thrive in the most godless of societies is the main lesson we don't want to miss. It's the lesson that's particularly relevant for us today. We live in a world gone haywire. Our moral fabric seems to be decaying at breakneck speed. One pastor and author writes, in a few short decades, our culture's response to Bible-believing Christians has gone from grudging respect to a patronizing pat on the head to a marginalizing indifference to outright hostility. Al Mohler, who's president of Southern Seminary, in a recent interview said, conservative Christians in America are undergoing a huge shift in the way we see ourselves in the world. We are on the losing side of a massive change that's not going to be reversed in all likelihood in our lifetimes. Christians must adapt to the changed cultural circumstances by finding a way to live faithfully in a world in which we are going to be a moral exception. It's no easy thing as Christ followers, to live godly lives in the midst of an increasingly godless society. But it can be done. And Daniel shows us how. He thrived in Babylon. And so can we. Daniel found a way in a culture that was far more wicked than anything we face. He found a way to glorify God and to serve God with such integrity and power that kings and people and in an entire nation even turned to acknowledge the supremacy of the living God. We can thrive in Babylon. Daniel did it, and we can do it as Christ followers. But it raises the question, how? How did Daniel do it? How did he not get squeezed into the world's mold? How did he not conform to the world's values? How did he live for God in such a godless culture? Well, obviously, God's hand of power was upon Daniel. But Daniel was also a man of great faith. And that brings us to the question 
that I want us to consider this morning. How big is your God? How big is your God? And in considering this question, let's take a closer look at the magnitude of the mess in which Daniel found himself, because it was awful. Notice, number one, his dilemma, Daniel's dilemma. He was caught in the backwash of God's judgment on the, on the sins of Israel and Jerusalem. In the opening verses, we learn something here, that Daniel was caught in this backwash of the Babylonian captivity as a result of God's judgment on the sins of his people. Look at it again in verse 1. It says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. In other words, he raided it. He captured it. Talk about your world falling apart. A foreign power, if you might imagine, invades your city and captures it and raids it. But God had warned the Israelites numerous of times through His prophets that if they continued to disobey Him, if they continued to live their own way, do their own thing, and did not change their ways and turn back to God, foreign nations would be sent as God's divine agents of judgment. Years earlier, the prophet Isaiah pleaded on behalf of God to the people of God in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 19. And Isaiah pleads with them with these words. He says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist, if you rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. And sadly, God's people turned a deaf ear to the prophet Isaiah. They didn't listen to Isaiah, nor did they listen to Amos and to Joel, nor to any of the, of the other minor prophets. They continued to disobey with high-handed arrogance. And finally, God had enough in the Israelites felt the hand of God's judgment upon them. And God used the Babylonian Empire as his agent of judgment. King Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city. He raided the temple of God, and he carried off the best and the brightest of Jerusalem's young men, including Daniel and his three friends. No doubt God's judgment was severe. Listen, it was very severe. And yet God's people got what they deserved and what they needed in order to turn their hearts back to God. Unfortunately, what we see here in these opening two verses is for Daniel and his three friends, they got caught in the middle of all this. They were carted off to Babylon as captives. And this brings us to one of the most difficult lessons to learn in life. It's a lesson that Daniel had to learn for himself. Notice this. In that lesson is here. Sometimes the godly suffer with the guilty, as a and as a result, they can get caught in the backwash of God's judgment. Sometimes the godly suffer with the guilty. This is the first lesson Daniel and his three friends learned when they themselves were taken captive to Babylon. So how bad was it for them? How bad was it living in Babylon? 
Well, it's never been easy to live a godly life. The challenges we face here today may be daunting, but they're nothing new. And again, this is why Daniel's story is so important. It not only gives us an example to follow, but it also gives us perspective. Because no matter how bad things get, Daniel had it far worse. When it comes to evil, Babylon has no equal to it. Let me show you what I mean. Notice this in your notes here. First of all, Babylon, the city of Babylon, is the personification of all that is evil and wicked. What's interesting is in verse 2, Daniel uses this phrase, the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar, which is interesting because that is actually the ancient name for the land of Babylon. Now, nothing happens by accident here. Daniel's the author of this book. He's writing it, and he's writing it some years after he's been taken captive. And he's looking back, and he's now writing this to encourage his people that are now captives in Babylon to raise their hopes up, to raise their faith in God. And he goes back and he uses this specific phrase, the land of Shinar. In fact, this name Shinar, it traces all the way back to Genesis to the Tower of Babel where humanity at that point in time flexed their muscle and, and displayed her pride to God as they tried to build that tower. Now Daniel's doing something here for us. And the question is, do you see what Daniel's doing? Do you, do you see at the outset here, and what he's doing is he's reminding us with this phrase that this is not just a historical battle between the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Babylon. No, no, this is a, a spiritual battle, if you will, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, personified by the kingdom of Babylon. And so what starts in God's word with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 now comes to this climax with the return of Christ at the end of the Scriptures in Revelation chapter 18. In fact, the Bible says that immediately before Jesus returns back to the earth, a mighty angel will come down from heaven crying out, and guess what he cries out? Fallen. Fallen is Babylon the Great. Now that's strange, because historic Babylon has ceased to exist. And according to God's word, historic Babylon will never be built again. It will never be inhabited again. So why now, why hearken back to a kingdom that's long been gone? Well, the answer is simple. Babylon is the symbol for evil, for wickedness. Even at the end of history, Babylon will still represent to the angelic host all that is wicked in this world. Nothing will ever reach Babylon's depths of depravity. Not the Tower of Babel, not Sodom and Gomorrah, not even America. So what made Babylon so bad that it has become this biblical symbol for all that is evil and wicked from Genesis 11 all the way through the end to Revelation? Well, two reasons in particular. Notice this. Babylon's king was a godless ruler named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, let me tell you, was an egomaniac. Known to be hot-headed, murderous, vain, unreasonable, and incredibly cruel and barbaric. 
Verse 2 tells us that after conquering Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar raided the temple of God and he took a number of holy vessels from God's temple and he brought them back to Babylon in order to put them on display in the temple of the chief god of Babylon. Now that was common to do in that day and age and there was a reason why they did that. Because it was to communicate that our God is greater than your God. And so what Nebuchadnezzar is doing with this display here, it was his way of mocking the God of Israel. It was his way of saying, my God, our God of Babylon is greater than your God, Israel. You claim to have the true God, the one living God. Oh no, you're defeated. And I'm taking holy vessels in your temple that you used to worship God with, and I'm putting them on display in my temple because my God reigns supreme. Later, Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll see in this series, he built a 90-foot golden statue as a tribute to his personal power and fame. And then he demanded that everyone bow down and worship it, and those who refused were immediately put to death. Gives you some insight into how cruel this guy is that we're dealing with. But Babylon, also, another reason why it was symbolic and why it was so bad, is Babylon's culture was influenced by a godless society and system. Now, we'll explore this in detail next Sunday when Daniel and his three friends were assimilated into the Babylonian culture. But for now, it helps to know that Babylon was known for its demonic influences. In fact, the state-sponsored religion was satanic, and the core curriculum in the schools of higher learning included a large dose of astrology and the occult. And to make matters worse, Babylon was fiercely hostile to the spiritual values that Daniel and his three friends sought to live by. And so the culture here in which Daniel and his three friends are being immersed into was influenced by a very godless society and a very godless system. This was the dilemma that Daniel faced when his world suddenly fell apart. Daniel found himself caught in the backwash of God's judgment in the city of Babylon, the very symbol of all that is evil and wicked in the world. And yet, it's amazing. When you read through the book of Daniel, you'll never read that he, he never complained, he never whined, he never gave in to his despair. So what was his secret? I mean, how is that possible? Well, the secret was Daniel's hope, which brings us to our second point here. We've looked at his dilemma, but don't overlook his hope. And his hope is this. He knew even in Babylon, God was in control of who was in control. In fact, it's the very first thing Daniel points out when he begins to tell us his story here in the first two verses. Daniel starts his book by emphasizing that Babylon's victory over Jerusalem, listen, it was not some tragic triumph of evil over good. Rather, Daniel tells us from the outset that it was God's will. It was all of God's doing. Look what Daniel writes at the end of verse 1 and leading into the beginning of verse 2. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. In the very next verse, and the Lord, and the Lord. And what did the Lord do? 
It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, again, Daniel is setting the foundation for us here. These two verses give us a picture from two different perspectives. The first verse gives you the historical perspective. But the second verse gives you the theological perspective. The first verse gives you this blow-by-blow account of what's happening to Jerusalem. But the second verse tells you why it's happening. The first verse may look like that the God of Israel has fallen prey to the false gods of Babylon, but the second verse makes it clear that it was all of God's doing. Now, from Daniel's perspective, it was God who gave Babylon the victory. And the Lord gave. And the Lord gave. It was God, in other words, who turned the holy things in the temple over to Nebuchadnezzar. It was God who allowed them to be placed in the temple of a pagan god. It was God who allowed Nebuchadnezzar to get away with mocking the God of Israel as a defeated foe. In fact, everything that happens in these two verses is proof that God is in control. You see, the downfall the defeat of Jerusalem is not proof against the God of Israel. It is not proof that God is not sovereign. It is not proof against His power or His plan. On the contrary, I would make the argument that the defeat of Jerusalem, the downfall of Jerusalem, is actually proof positive that God is in control. You say, how's that? Well, back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God warned His people that if they disobeyed Him, that they would be defeated and they would be taken captive. And now, almost a thousand years later, a patient and long-suffering God is keeping His promises. You see, the defeat and deportation of God's people is not a proof that God's plan has failed. It is proof positive that God's plan has been fulfilled. And so don't miss this, because this is critical to the whole study. If you don't get this, you don't understand the book of Daniel. You don't understand why Daniel does what he does. You don't understand how Daniel can thrive in the midst of Babylon. If we miss this... From the first page to the last, Daniel clearly saw something here. And he saw that God's hand in everything that happened. It's the foundation upon which his hope rested. He knew that even in Babylon, God was in control of who was in control. This is the basis of Daniel's hope. Notice that even more unpacked here, that there is a God in heaven and He is in control. Throughout the whole book, Daniel emphasizes the sovereignty of God. You find this repeated over and over and over again throughout the book of Daniel. There is a God in heaven and He is in control. 
You go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 28, and Daniel himself writes, but there is a God in heaven. You drop down to Daniel chapter 4, verse 17, and then he writes that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever He wills. This is the key theme in the book of Daniel. There is a God in heaven, and He is in control. This is what He rests His hope on. God is in control of earthly empires. He's using their actions to further His own plan. He's judging evil rulers while protecting the suffering people. And in the end, He is bringing His perfect kingdom here on earth. God is in control of nations, in control of families, in control of individuals. He is in control of the past, the present, and the future. He is in control of good days and bad days. He is in control of great victories and shocking defeats. He is in control when a child is born and when death knocks at your door. God is in control. Our God is sovereign over all things, including big things like kings and empires. But he's also sovereign over small things, like a teenager named Daniel. Daniel's chief goal, as we said, is to encourage God's people. There's a remnant of God's people, and they need some encouragement. Because they're living in Babylon. They need to know something. That although you've been deported, you've been taken away from your home, and you're here in Babylon, listen, all is not lost. Our God still reigns. God is still in control. Charles Spurgeon once said, there is no attribute more comforting to his children than the, that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances and the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children of God ought to more earnestly contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation." the kingship of God over all the works of His own hands, the throne of God and His right to sit upon that throne, for it is God upon the throne whom we trust. Trust in God's sovereignty and remain faithful no matter what because there is a God in heaven and He is in control. And when you begin to believe that, when you trust that, then that, notice the second point here, when the Lord is behind everything and you know that and you believe that and trust that, it changes everything. Frankly, there is no way to make sense of the book of Daniel without this understanding. There is no way to make sense of Daniel's response to the wickedness that surrounded him without understanding his deep trust in the sovereignty of the Lord. God's control. It was, the, it was the lens through which he viewed everything that happened to him and his nation. And it's the first thing that he wants us to grapple with. It's the first thing that he wants us to grab hold of and understand for ourselves before he dives into the rest of the story. Now, I am not saying, and Daniel's not implying, that God's ultimate control over people and nations just turns us into mere puppets 
on a string. That's not true either. Listen, we have freedoms. God has given us freedoms. We can choose to live within God's will, or we can choose to live outside of God's will. And believe me, our choices make a difference. Our choices really matter. They determine the direction of our lives and even the outcomes of our lives. And so we alone are responsible for our actions and our responses to God Almighty. We can't blame them on somebody else. We can't blame them on our parents or on our children or on our, our co-workers or whoever it may be. And we also can't blame them on God. God's sovereign control simply means that in the bigger scheme of things, there is nothing incidental in life or accidental. God's plans will not be thwarted. He is never surprised. He is never befuddled. At the end of the day, everything will be found to have worked together for the good of His people and the glory of His name. It's what you see in chapter 2. It's what you see again in chapter 3, chapter 4, and throughout the pages of the book of Daniel. The glory of God, the glory of God coming to fruition. For Daniel, God's sovereign control factored into everything. No matter what happened, he never forgot that his God was far bigger than his Babylon. This was the source of Daniel's hope. But here's the problem. Today... Hope has come to mean something completely different than the kind of biblical hope that Daniel had. Today, the word hope has come to mean either wishful thinking, I hope the Falcons win tonight, or mental gymnastics of positive visualization, such as when we tell people, oh, don't give up hope, you can beat this and whatnot. But Daniel's hope had nothing to do with wishful thinking or visual posit uh, positive visualization. He didn't wish that everything would turn out okay, and he didn't visualize everything turning out okay. He knew that everything would turn out okay. He knew in the sense, as in knowing a mathematical fact, that 2 plus 2 equals, and there's no relevance to that. He knew that God was in ultimate control of who was in control, as well as everything that was happening to him and around him. And if God was in control, then there was no need to panic. Even if he sometimes had no idea what God was up to. In other words, Daniel had hope in the biblical sense of the word. He had this deep-seated confidence in God's character and in God's sovereignty, and he staked his life on it. In fact, it was the lens through which he evaluated his circumstances, what was happening to him. It was the lens through which he made his decisions and determined his actions, which brings us back to the question, how big is your God? How big is your God? Now, as you consider this question, let me leave you with two places to start. The first of which is, dare to admit that you sometimes fear that your God might not be as big 
as your Babylon. I think every one of us, <laughs> when it comes to our response time this morning, we just need to go to the God in prayer and be honest with him. And say, God, you're right. There are times I question how big you are in my life. There are times I fear that you're not as big as the circumstances that's going on in my life. And this fear is causing me to waver in following you and trusting you. Now, we would never say out loud that we fear that God is not as big as our Babylon. But it's often how we feel, especially when life falls apart. That's what makes Daniel's story so relevant and so practical for us today. If we want to make a dent in our modern day Babylon, then we need to follow the example of the man God used to influence the original Babylon. And it all starts with something that we can too easily forget or even deny when caught in the backwash. But God is in control of who is in control. And that goes for our country. As we now have come out of an election year in which there is a polarization in our country like never before. God is in control of who is in control. And on a large scale, our country, you can bring it down to a smaller scale of your own personal life and what you're dealing with and going through. God is in control of who is in control. And I think the first place to start with this question, how big is your God, is simply be honest with God and just say, God, sometimes I struggle with this. Sometimes I struggle and I fear that you're not as big as my Babylon, my Babylon in quotes, my world in which you have placed me in. And I'm struggling here, Lord. Which brings us to number two. And that is to dare to believe that God is in control even when your world falls apart. Dare to believe that there is a God in heaven and he is in control. Folks, listen. Get this. Do you realize this means the sparrow does not fall to the ground without God's permission. According to Jesus in Matthew 10, 29, which demonstrates for us that even the most trivial of events are within God's view. On the other extreme, though, even the most wicked act of all time the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was also, get this, the outworking of God's sovereign purpose according to Acts 4.28. This means that no sinful act, whether it's big or small or in between, ever catches God by surprise or thwarts His sovereign will. Even when the wicked seem to prevail, God is at work. His kingdom will come. His will will be done. Dare to believe that God is in control even when He doesn't seem in control in our country, in our world, and in your life. This truth means that you can rest 
You can rest with confidence. You can rest with hope that God controls who owns the place of your employment. Who moves in next door? Who becomes your next boss? Who teaches your kids at school? Who will fill the vacancy on the Supreme Court? Who comes into our country and who goes out of our country? God is never out of control. He is always in control. He is always working to fulfill His redemptive purposes for humanity. Therefore, as Christ's followers, we here this morning, we ought to be some of the most hope-filled people on the face of the planet, regardless of circumstances. So I ask you to consider again how big is your God. For Daniel, he knew that even in Babylon, there was a God in heaven who was in control. What do you know? What are you resting your hope on and your faith in? How big is your God? Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. And we come to you as frail and needy people. People whose faith is wobbling at times. And so, Lord, we need you to lift us up. We need you to encourage us as we live here in America in our own Babylon. Lord, we want to follow you, but sometimes our desire is matched by the forces of evil in this world. And so help us to not try to live for you in our own power, but in your power, by your Spirit, by the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, in your Word. Lord, help us to take cues from Daniel here, the first of which is to have a rock-solid belief and to know that you are in control of who's in control. And so encourage us even now with that truth, but at the same time, Lord, let us be honest, let us admit that we struggle with believing that truth. We pray these things in your name. Amen. The praise team's going to sing, and as they do, let me encourage you to go to the Lord in prayer. Respond to Him as He leads you.